0: The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. I love that song we just sang, the moon and the stars declare who you are. And I was thinking about that. Our creator is so extraordinary. The thing that makes me look out at all of you and know that when I look at something like your brain, it declares who God is. That God is a relational God that is interested in communication because your brains, everyone here, is wired to be in relationship. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see a picture of your brain, but I'm going to describe it for you because I think it's incredible. And you have a part of your brain called the amygdala. It's right in the center. It's all about your emotions. From the second you were born, this part of your brain is wired to communicate your feelings so that other people can take care of you, right? When you were a baby, you felt hungry, you cried and someone fed you. When you were a baby, you felt frightened, you cried and someone held you. There was a lot of crying in the early days. But as you grew older, that amygdala would kick in and communicate an emotion. That's a key idea. Another part of your brain that's amazing is the hippocampus. That hippocampus recalls memory. So it works well for you. So that when you cry because you're frightened and someone holds you, then you build a little memory about that in that little part, that hippocampus right next to that amygdala. So then you have this thinking part of your brain. The cerebellum. It's all that gray matter that's swirling around. And between birth and 10, you are building country roads all over the place with all this learning that you're doing. You learn to walk, to whistle, to talk, to engage, to communicate how your ideas in language. And when you turn about 10, between 10 and becoming in your early 20s, those country roads start to move to a highway. And the way it does that is that your brain starts pruning the country roads and starting to build highways. In that pruning process of 10 to early 20s, it starts to build a highway around the idea of how am I going to communicate and make a decision. That's why teenagers still have a mix between country road and highways, so they default most to emotion. So when you hear people saying, well, teenagers are moody, it's because they're communicating their mood first because they have all these country roads. Their biggest, most known default is to communicate on emotion so they act on more feelings. If we filled this room with the kids from The Edge and the kids from The Rock with all of you, here's the difference between those kids and all of you. I could tell a super sad story. I'm a really good storyteller. I tell a super sad story. All the kids from The Rock on the Edge, I could get to cry like that. You have highways built from that amygdala to this front part of your brain, this computer part, the prefrontal cortex. That highway says something from all your vast experience of age to say, you know what? I've cried before in this group, and that did not go well for me. (laughs) So I'm not going to cry now, even though I also feel sad like these moody teenagers. I'm going to wait and go out to my car in the parking lot and cry there. (laughs) See the difference? You've got a highway that says, I've had experience before, I understand the consequence, and therefore I will put a brake on my feeling... And let it emerge later or decide how I'm going to communicate differently. That's the difference between you and those younger than you. The job of 10 through early 20s is to build highways of communication. People who are interesting have built highways that give you two specific parts to a toolkit of communication. The first thing that they have a toolkit around is the ability to express emotion in a language that's interesting. Now think of the most dysfunctional communicator that you can think of that's in the city of Seattle right now and they're probably sitting over in juvenile detention right now. Here's what their emotional toolkit looks like for them. When I get in that situation, I'm mad. And that's the extent of their vocabulary around emotion. People who have matured and who have built an emotional library they can pull up the difference between mad disappointed and mad discouraged. See the difference? Because people who have built an emotional language can communicate then and act upon feelings that are more descriptive, more elaborated, more interesting. The other part of a toolkit that people need to communicate is to be able to understand how to build a strategy around that emotion. So people who are it's sitting over in juvenile detention that struggle because they have one emotional toolkit called mad also have only one emotional or strategy toolkit which is hitting or yelling or destroying. Your job as someone who's 20 in their 20s and on, that job is to say I'm going to build two I've been building two interesting toolkits that are helpful for me. One is an emotional toolkit that is very rich and varied and actually has a language that has meaning for me. And I can build strategies around that emotional response that are effective, that I've tried before, that work for me. Sitting literally blocks away from us is a man named Dr. John Gottman who has uncovered this idea about communication and relationships. And in probably one of the most uniquely designed and a longitudinal research study around communication and relationships. He has wired up couples, put electrodes all over their bodies, taken urine samples, and put them in, in an apartment and said, hey, live here for 24, 48 hours and see how it goes for you. And here's what he found. After hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this, what he calls the love lab, he said... I'm gonna just, my question that I'm gonna ask myself and our research team is gonna ask is, what makes effective communication? What makes effective relationship building? And he was actually able to distill it all the way down into one sentence. And his final conclusion after all that work is, for these couples, these are all married couples, was this relationship will go far if the wife feels Heard. Now, I can tell you as a wife, I could have told him that like (laughs) 20 years ago, okay? But it's interesting. They sat and looked at voice tapes, watched uh, heart rate monitors. They tracked the kinds of comments that people made. They watched TV. They engaged. They, They sat and had dinner. They cooked dinner together. They made decisions. They got in conversations. That's all they did. And he boiled it all the way down to that single solitary idea, when the wife feels heard. Now pause on that for a second because this idea of being heard is an interesting one. Go over to Washington, D.C., and there's another researcher named Deborah Tannen. She's a linguist. She's asked some of the same questions. She said, what does it mean to be heard? What does that mean to people and how does that express itself? So she started off by pulling out a group of second graders, she put the boys in one room and she put the girls in another room and she left them there for an hour. And she recorded the conversation, took videotape, and here's what she found the second grade girls made a circle. They talked about other people, people that they shared in common. It was all about the people. They took turns. They looked each other in the eye. They (laughs) nodded. They said, yes, what else do you have to say? And it all went extremely well for the second grade girls. The second grade boys had a blast. Nobody sat down. People wandered around. They had a fantastic time. They did all sorts of engaging and talking. And the boys kept looking at all the stuff in the room that they were dying to play with but had been asked not to. And the entire conversation was around, was around the doing that they could not do and the doing that they were going to do the second that this hour was over. So she said, that's kind of interesting. I like that. That's kind of interesting because that says, how do we hear each other? What do we expect from communication, Right? And is that really so gender related? I'm fascinated by that. Is that our brains, or is that how we've been socialized? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So she took a group of sixth graders. She put the girls in one room for an hour, she put the boys in another room for an hour, and she let them be. Here's what happened. The girls made a circle. They talked about a single other girl that they shared as a common friend that they were worried about for the entire hour. It was all about a friend, talked about the friend, they used a lot of language about the friend, they had a fantastic time, they took turns, they looked each other in the eye, they nodded occasionally and said, yes, what else, and would you like to have a turn? So then she went over and peeked in on the boys. Some were more sitting than the second grade. Nobody made a circle. Some people were sitting way out and leaning back. And they talked about 55 different topics in the hour. Extremely different. So then she thought to herself, huh, that is still so intriguing to me. Both the girls and the boys had a fantastic time. Everybody in that room felt like they had an opportunity to communicate and be heard, but how that expressed itself was entirely different. So what if I take a group of 20-something people and I just have a conversation with them around what does it mean to feel heard? What would that look like? And she runs into a couple that was very typical. She said, you know what, when something, it's kind of frustrating actually, because when something like my day doesn't go very well and I want to talk about it, he just lies on the ground and he puts his hand over his eyes like that. And it's like, so, such a bummer. He goes, that is the way I listen. I couldn't listen unless I tuned out the world and laid myself flat on the ground, I've got to tune out. I'm thinking about all this cool stuff I could be doing. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm giving you 100% of my attention by shutting down. And what is she hoping for? Eye contact, nodding, right? And vocalizations. So Deborah Tannen gets to start to put this idea in workplaces and relationships and starts to ask the question of what about classrooms for kids? What about adult relationships? And how do we consider ourselves heard? How do we express ourselves? Likewise, at the same time, Dr. Gottman here has been saying, if it's true that people need to feel heard, how would we communicate that, and what are effective strategies? So he created a a program that people could go through to learn strategies around how to communicate that you are hearing people. I'll pause on that for a second and say that he then turned around and asked the question, if it's true for couples, is it also true for families? Is it true that parents and kids have some of the same issues in terms of being heard. And he wired up kids and took urine samples and talked to families and recorded them in space. And guess what? He found the same thing. Families work better when kids feel heard. So he's done trainings of couples and trainings of parents so that they can start to identify how it is that we can communicate that we are hearing other people. Deborah Tannen and Dr. Gottman have come up with some of the same ideas, which is this. People make bids to connect and almost every bid to connect, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, has an emotional component to it. And being heard means that you've connected somehow on that emotional expression from someone. Now that's, A lot easier when you're 12 and you're emoting all over the place because you're acting on more feelings. You as adults have learned to put the brake on showing some of that emotion, so we need to be more astute with each other to be able to identify what is it that that person is trying to tell me or communicate or let me know. But I'll give you an example of how it all works. Anybody who's come home after a really bad day and said it to another adult Day just stunk, and the other adult said, "Oh, well, you got to hear about mine." Doesn't work, does it? Did you feel heard? All right, how about this? This is another super effective way to communicate. When someone goes, "Oh, my day just stunk," and the person goes, oh, "I got ten ways you could make that day better." Doesn't work either, does it? See what works, and when people feel heard, is when someone says, "Hey, that day." dunk and someone goes wow that sounds rough and stops talking right it's connecting around the bid and not solving it for somebody not coming up with a solution for somebody not thinking of 10 bible verses to throw their way it's just staying quiet And some of the most incredible conversations are actually ones of listening and restraint. Because actually being heard means that the person walked away and said, I think that person really got me. I think about these small groups. I think about ways that we communicate both men and women in groups and how we are heard or not heard. It's very interesting, again, looking at gender and the way people socialize. People socialize together in gender. And, again, you don't want to – I'm not trying to create gender stereotypes, but more cast-out ideas for you that have been found in research, and then you can go, that's real for me, or I don't see that. That's, I'm totally open to that. But one of the ideas that's interesting is that women tend uh, – we create in research this idea of tend and befriend so that you tend to bring people into the conversation versus create conflict. This is the way it would go with, oh, and then boys tend to, or men, young men into older men tend to build relationship over the competition, over over excelling in a certain situation so elaborate hierarchies can be built into boys' social groups so that they have to do with achieving. This is the way it would look. If you have two boys and a rock, okay? The first boy says, I could throw a rock and hit that light. The second boy says, I could throw a rock and hit the ceiling. And the first boy says, I could throw a rock and hit the moon. Here's two girls and a rock. I could throw a rock and hit that light. And the second girl says, me too. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? This idea of even picturing yourself in a small group, what would that look like? How will you show that you listen? Will it feel important for you to have the last word, the first word, the final say? How will you engage? How will you let people know that they're heard? It's intriguing. Where are your gifts? So if it's true that your brain and the way you're wired. Oh, let me add just two more things about the way your brain is wired. So, you've got there's no part of any conversation or relationship that doesn't have to do with an emotional component. It's impossible. You may think that you've disengaged your emotional component. All you've done is actually built a super highway so sometimes you don't acknowledge the feeling anymore. But Most decisions that you make have an emotional component to it, and almost every conversation and uh, uh, engagement with someone honestly has an emotional component to it, and every bid to connect with you is expressed emotionally for someone. Being heard means somehow being able to pay attention and be mindful for that person's emotional uh, part of what they're trying to communicate with you. Not so much the fact, but the emotional part. So there's a couple more parts to your brain that is so incredible that our God has designed us to, because you're building these transmissions that go from a feeling part to your brain to this thinking part of your brain and this computer in the front. But then you've got these neurotransmitters. These neurotransmitters are actually sending these messages towards places and rewarding certain connections. One neurotransmitter that you have is dopamine. That dopamine says that you will seek pleasure and avoid pain. So when you think about that, when you're in groups or in relationships with people, every time that you create a pleasurable experience, whether it's sex or kissing or chocolate cake, you release dopamine in your brain that says, I seek pleasure and I avoid pain because that dopamine gives you a rush. So does a cigarette, by the way or a drink, but dopamine can also be a rush from just fantastic engagement. But then you've got another neurotransmitter called oxytocin. That's relationship neurotransmission. And that's about bonding and connecting with people. And you also have that part of your brain. God's put it there. And so every time you've made an incredible emotional bonding experience with someone, that is the same thing. It's an experience of seeking connection with people. It's seeking to belong. It's the belonging neurotransmitter. So your brains are wired to connect with people. And our job is to think about what would that look like in communication to be heard. And if I think about a place where it becomes um, how does God look at communication, I think it's fun to look at um, Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. In that... Story: Jesus and the disciples have been walking along, and they could have skipped Samaria, but they, uh, Jesus, chooses to go in there because most of the Jewish travelers would have just gone on another route. But they come into this town, and it's lunchtime, and they're starving and exhausted, and it's super hot. So the disciples go off to go find some food, and Jesus sits down at the well where this woman, this Samaritan woman, then comes. And what we know about that story is that the Samaritans and the Jews do not communicate and do not get along. And in fact, she would be considered an unclean woman. So first of all, Jesus wouldn't be talking to her generally because she is a woman as a Jewish man and a woman. But then he, in this Private space, but then the fact that she's a Samaritan adds to the uncleanliness for her in this relationship. But instead of ignoring her or instead of walking away, he says to her, Can you give me a drink? And in that moment, he bids out to the most unclean person and tries to make a connection. And it's an amazing idea, isn't it? That we're called upon to bid out to even the most unclean, to even the most disturbing people, the people that were not asked to bid out to her, that aren't so easy to bid out to, and yet Jesus models it right there. This conversation that he has with her is the single longest personal conversation of Jesus' life that's recorded in the Bible, is with this woman. So despite all that's around them in the environment, in terms of taboos and, and, and everything about their story, he bids out to her, can you give me a drink? And she's amazed by that. She's like, why are you asking me? Why would you do that? And the, I think because we know later that she has had five husbands and he knows that and reveals that to her, she even knows how unclean she is, doesn't she? And aren't we a little bit like that? Sometimes when we bid out to other people, we think, as long as I can keep it at this level, they won't need to know how bad I am on some of these places. That until people actually get to know me, I can stay pretty safe in my communication. But what's so incredible about this moment is that not only does he bid out to someone who he's not supposed to or is not socially acceptable, and he does she's surprised by that and then he tells her his her own story you have five husbands in fact the husband that you're with right now is not that you is not your husband either and that revealing gives her an opportunity to think he even knows my very worst part and even then he stays and sits with her and he says to her in the only other place in the new testament this is it where he says i am he i am the messiah and because of that this is the first woman who goes out and brings the people to jesus this connection this conversation that happens in spite of everything is the one that brings people to these disciples and of course the disciples show up and say you know what is going on here so interesting because you're talking to this woman that we wouldn't ever talk to. But he, Jesus, is the one that's modeled this conversation that says, I hear you and I know you. Because to me, this woman walks away from this conversation and says, I was heard. I was heard in spite of all of that. I understand that you are the living water. And I don't get it all. I don't understand all the logistics. But I I have been heard in a way that I have been ignored. We know that a woman, this Samaritan woman is probably showing up at this well because it's hot outside. And this would be the only time that other people wouldn't be there. Because coming to a well for women would be a time to tend and befriend, wouldn't it? So you would either come in the morning or in the evening where you could come and talk at the well. But this woman is coming when nobody is there. So we know that Jesus is there to find the most disenfranchised person. And it's her. He seeks her out because she is so isolated. I was thinking about how... Incredible that is. How often do we seek out people that are so disenfranchised that we would find them and um, discover them and create conversation with them and then even bravely try to understand and hear who they were? I don't know that I, I do that very often. I have some great conversations with people that I already know and trust and will be safe people, but I don't make myself unsafe very often. So communication has to do with revealing of yourself, of sharing who you are, and spending time communicating and showing people that you can hear them. And to do that, you have to connect with people around their emotional selves. Just talking about the day-to-day life is great, and it's building, but truly being heard means they saw me at my ugliest, and they heard my emotional self. And then that is truly communication. Let me finish with a prayer from Colossians chapter 4. Would you join me? Jesus, what awesome work you have for us. Guide us as we pray diligently. Help us to stay alert with our eyes wide open in gratitude, to use our heads as we live and work and talk with each other. Help us not to miss a trick, to make the most of every opportunity. Let our conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everyone. Amen.